Take your Bibles and uh, turn or scroll to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. As you're doing that, I just wanted to take a moment and update you. We have the privilege of partnering with saints around the world in the work of the Great Commission. I'd like to highlight our brothers and sisters in Brazil. Uh, We've been so heartened by their response to the pandemic. You might know that Brazil has been hit uh, particularly hard. So the staff of open arms that are kind of scattered all throughout the country, um, they have been very proactive and creative in ways that they've ministered to people, lots of food drives and such. But I want to show you something that uh, they have been participating in uh, from September until just a week or two ago. And uh, this is uh, Teresa. I'd like you to meet Teresa, I believe, up in Assis. This was her home. For 36 years, she prayed uh, that the Lord would give her something more for the number of people who live with her. Enter our ministry partners. Here's some of them. They kept themselves engaged uh, during the pandemic, and that is her new home. They literally built a home. So praise the Lord. There's the before and the after, and I'm just giving you a few kind of snapshots. It's wonderful to see this kind of unfold in real time. And when they gifted her the new home, uh, and they committed, obviously, the home uh, to the Lord and, and also to her, and that's their way of not only worshiping but serving her uh, in the moment as they committed this new home to her and her loved ones uh, living with her. Um, so I just wanted to share that with you, but also want to say they're, they're at it again. Uh, they are now down in our neck of the woods in Akitawana uh, with Sarita. We had the privilege of partnering with her. So this is her hometown, and uh, this is... Uh, this will be Serena Serlene's uh, new home, and uh, what's been encouraging to hear is them just talk about you know previously nine months of laughing and praying and building a house together. Uh, yes, they did have experts helping and guiding them, um, but they are not experts, right? And so that was uh, just a beautiful time of drawing together. And while we're speaking of our international ministries, um, seven years ago uh, today, I had a team, our very first team in Kazakhstan, in Almaty. And we were building out, helping to build out the home for the Esenov family, which currently has 49 adopted kids. 49 adopted kids, many of whom have now married, um, you know, have grown up. But uh, they saw a need The police knew uh, exactly where to take kids from the street that were abandoned. They would just take them to them before they processed them in the main office because that's where they stood the best chance. So praise the Lord for that. So Matthew chapter 7. Last week we spoke to the what we often call the golden rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. It is a summation of of the heart of God, preached in this case to the followers of Christ as a controlling concept as we live our lives. We do not live our lives for our glory, our comfort, our good, but for the better of others. 
So we view and therefore we treat others through that lens. What we're about to speak to this morning, for some may be the most important truth or set of truths that you have ever heard in your entire life. Let me explain. The Sermon on the Mount does not end with the golden rule. It does not end with love your neighbor as yourself. It is not the crescendo. It is a very important part of it, but there's more. There is a sacred ground that we are now going to traverse, that we are now going to enter. Jesus will now bookend on the other side of his sermon a theme that is most unpopular and underrepresented today. Judgment. There's a couple things that Jesus will teach with clarity and provision in this passage. First of all, judgment is a thing. It exists. It will happen. And he's the judge. Perhaps the most terrifying passage in all of scripture is what we'll encounter in the next week or two. Where many who think they're safely in will find out that they're not. To hear from the Lord Jesus Christ, I never knew you. That is arresting. And it should grab our attention. Now, I'll be quick to say that for those who have put their faith and their trust in Christ as their Savior and Lord, this is not something to terrify you. But as we'll look in just a moment about the narrow gate, we have to take all of that into consideration. So let's read our text. It's Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 13. We'll just take two verses this morning. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy. That leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. There are truths here that are self-evident and are most worthy of our collective attention. I've alluded to them throughout this entire series, and we will now expound them very carefully and very clearly. If your view of Jesus does not include what he says here, your view of Jesus, I submit to you, is incomplete. We must make room for the fullness of the life, the ministry, and the message of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
the running commentary widely accepted and assumed upon today is contrary, precisely contrary to what Jesus speaks to here. The notion that you can find your own reality and what works for you is good for me and for God. Like, just blaze your own trail, be yourself. What works for you, what's good for you, is good for anybody. That's actually not what Jesus taught. And so we direct our attention to the very words of our Lord. And yes, I'm speaking with a with a sober note this morning because what Jesus speaks to is so important. We cannot look at the Sermon on the Mount and not see what he says here. This is the conclusion. He's bringing it all together. This is his inaugural sermon, his inaugural teaching. And he's now going to turn to those listening to him and ask the question, what are you going to do with what I've just told you and with who I am? There's a response. You see, the Sermon on the Mount is not just an ideology that's to be marveled at. They're truths to be obeyed. They're marvelous for sure. But there's truth to be obeyed and responded to. So here's the first thing that I want to bring to your attention this morning. The message of Jesus is not wide open in the sense of pick what fits you, what feels good to you, and just keep on walking in that direction. His message actually was quite exclusive. And right here in the very, in the very opening of the New Testament is Jesus speaking directly to this. Remember what has transpired in just four and a half very short chapters leading up to this. The prophesied forerunner of Christ, his cousin, John the Baptist. I mean, he just comes out, right? He's coming out of the wilderness. He grabs your attention and he directly... He directly confronts the religious leaders of the day. While he's baptizing with a baptism of repentance, he turns to the very people that no one would ever confront because they were up on a pedestal, the religious leaders, the Pharisees and all of their friends. And what does he do? He calls them to repentance in the same way that he's calling the average Joe. He puts everyone on the same level playing field. That had never, I assure you, been done before. And this is the volatile ground that we're now walking upon. Jesus did not soften the message. Repent and believe the gospel was his message. This is what he spoke. And this is what is encapsulated in this sermon on the mount. Enter, he says, by the narrow gate. And so we'll speak this morning to this concept of exclusivity.
the exclusivity of the gospel of Christ, the message of Jesus. It is offensive to many, which is why Paul told the Corinthians that the message of the cross is offensive. There's no surprise there. But is this just a one-off statement that I'm taking out of context, that I am highlighting for no good reason? I direct your attention now to the Gospel of John. John's stated purpose in writing his Gospel, the last Gospel, was so that we would believe in Christ. And he wants you to see what Jesus said. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The narrow and the wide gate. Do you see how narrow he just made it? No one comes to the Father except through me. The apostles understood this very well. In the apostolic preaching of the gospel in the book of Acts, we see this very familiar verse. There is no there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So here's Peter. Remember, Peter's the guy that we all love and we all identify with him. He had certified foot and mouth disease, right? He would often speak before he thought. He would act before he thought. All these things. Now Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit of God, set apart to proclaim the gospel of Christ. And his message could not be any clearer. There is salvation in no one else. If that wasn't clear, no other name under heaven. There is none. And that's why the apostles were willing to suffer greatly as they proclaimed the name of Jesus Christ. Because it wasn't just a fun exercise. This wasn't just made up around the campfire. Let's go talk about Jesus. Not at all. They were firmly convinced that he is, was, who he said he was. And therefore they boldly proclaimed him and they suffered for it. But I want to do something a little different this morning. I want to go beyond the proof text. I want to go beyond the verses saying, well, look at this verse here, look at this verse here. They are very clear. But I always appreciate the why behind the what. Why do we find these statements? Why do we see Jesus saying that? Why do we see the apostles boldly proclaiming Christ in this way? Because if we can understand the why, we, better underst- we will better understand the what. And we'll also gain confidence in that.
So here's what we're going to do. We're going to go back and recount some very key concepts in the Sermon on the Mount, which I think will bring clarity to what we're speaking to this morning. Maybe looking at some of the familiar verses through a different lens to understand why we preach this message. So let's go back to verse 17. I cannot underscore how important this statement is. Remember, the religious leaders wanted to know one thing, I'm sure amongst many, but here's one thing they wanted to know. Is this little rogue rabbi, is he going to honor Moses and the prophets? Is What is his straight edge going to be? Will he honor the law and the prophets? Jesus answers them in a way that is initially very satisfying to them. I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets. But very much like Jesus, the sentence doesn't end there in the same breath. He then knocks them over. What I mean by what I just said, gentlemen, is not only will I not abolish it, not only will I not sidestep it, not only will I not, you know, relegate it to something of virtual unimportance, I will fulfill it. That's not what they were expecting to hear. That was blasphemy. Because what is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, The ones that you esteem so highly, they spoke of me. And you know what? You are too spiritually dense to catch what is right in front of you. Imagine the weight and the power of what Jesus was expressing and conveying to the religious leaders. You have missed the work of God in such a magnificent fashion that the Son of God, the Messiah, the Christ, literally is standing right in front of you and you can't see me. Please understand the weight of what he's saying. Jesus would later expound upon this. Do you remember this? Luke 24, verse 44. The disciples on the road to Emmaus, shaking their head. This guy that we thought was the Messiah, he's dead. That's not how we anticipated things happening. Oh, he said, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And if you read the passage, he's talking about himself. So Jesus now does something that nobody expected. He went to the cross, he suffered, he died, and he rose again, the resurrection. They they weren't expecting that. And so Jesus hearkens back to his inaugural sermon, Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. Remember what I told you when I was with you? That everything 
in your Hebrew scriptures must come to pass. Notice how the apostles carried the baton. You might know that Luke and Acts are actually can be considered one volume. They're both written by Luke. The life and the ministry of Jesus and the history of the early church, the gospel exploding into the world. Acts chapter 28, speaking of the apostle Paul, we saw this recently as well, kind of closing out the book of Acts. From morning until evening, he, Paul, expounded to them. That is, he's teaching them, testifying to the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus came speaking about. And trying to convince them about Jesus. Now, how is he going to do this? From the law and the prophets. So now Paul is the unlikely, untimely chief of sinners, as he calls himself. He is the one who is now going to, he is now looking back and he's saying, this is what the law and the prophets were all about. And he is engaging them on the truth of God. And he wants them to see Jesus in their own scripture. This is the message of the New Testament. Jesus has come. The gospel is good news. The gospel is also a proclamation that Jesus has come and Jesus is Lord. When we consider... The resounding proclamation in the New Testament of who Jesus is, that Satan has been defeated. And as Paul told those at Mars Hill, Acts 17, God now calls upon everyone everywhere to repent. You cannot ignore Jesus Christ. And here's what I want you to see. This idea... That Jesus is the way. It is more than just a few proof texts that we point to. It is more than just a few statements that are irrefutably clear, by the way. And very penetrating. The entire structure of the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament and the New Testament, testify to this one truth. Who Jesus is. What he would do or has done. That matters. It is the fabric of all of God's word. Think about it. The the Old Testament. God's heart through the prophets. Through the centuries. This was not made up by the disciples around a campfire. When they said, well, hey, how can we kind of keep things going even though he's dead? Do you remember Pentecost? Do you remember what Peter preached in that first Christian evangelistic sermon? He went right to the Hebrew scriptures, right to the book of Psalms to talk about the resurrection. And he says in real time, oh, by the way, his tomb is right over there. If you're questioning this, which no one is at that point, just go, go look. The tomb's right over there. He's not there. My point is simply this. When we consider who Jesus is and what he has done, 
what he has accomplished and what our message is. Christ, the way, the truth, and the life is the summation of the fabric of the very word of God leading up to that. Decade after decade, century after century, prophets being raised up to testify to the people, but also as they're typically calling them to repentance, return back to God, do what you're supposed to do, stop ignoring him, care for the needy, do the things that you are supposed to be doing. All throughout that is punctuated. There's one coming. There's one coming. There's one coming who will eventually solve this mess. There is one coming who will remove iniquity, Zechariah says, in one day. All the priests are looking at that saying, what does that mean? Like We do this day after day and month after month and year after year. It's the same cycle. We're doing this over and over again. Clearly, we're not solving the problem. And so the prophetic voices, one after another, acknowledge that and say there's one coming. But this one who is coming will be unlike any other. His name will be called Mighty God. That will be his name. You can search Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah... All of the books, the minor prophets, there's not one of them saying, you know, there's this little prophet guy that's going to show up, one of us, and we're going to call him mighty God. That would never happen. But this one was the Messiah. This one is the Christ. He is the Son of God. And so John tells us that he appeared, the Son of God appeared. It's a very abrupt word. He showed up. We don't use that language for people. We talk about being born. Jesus was born, but he also showed up because God showed up in Bethlehem to destroy the works of the devil. And so when you read Jesus' statement in this initial sermon, and then when you see his teachings, and then when you see it, echo throughout the book of Acts and obviously into the epistles as well, the message is the same because this is God's plan. He's not an ordinary person. He's not an an extraordinary person. He is God, Emmanuel, God with us. The good news is this, John chapter 1, and we're winding down here, John chapter 1. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That is the best news we could ever hear. To those who receive Christ, who he is and what he has done for us, who believe in him, who trust him implicitly, who put all of their confidence in him and in him alone. To those people, he gave the right, the privilege, the power to become the children 
of God. That's the good news of the gospel. It's also the straight edge. It's also the bad news, which is do not ignore him. Do not not respond to him. That's the urgency of the word of God. How is all of this possible? These are verses. This is another verse we've looked at throughout this series. Second Corinthians five. We call it the great exchange. The passive and active obedience of Jesus Christ. Christ actively kept the law. He did what no one else has ever could ever do. He actually kept the law of God. Now think about it. When you read the Hebrew scriptures, there are blessing upon blessing that are attributed to the one who keeps the law of God. Even blessings on people who keep it imperfectly. Look, you're blessed when you do this. But here's the astounding, jarring, extraordinary, unbelievable, but believable, truth and core of the gospel. The very one who literally earned God's blessing, God's pleasure, God's approval, became a curse. For us. That's Bible language. He became a curse for us. He suffered for us. He took our place. Under the wrath of almighty God. The one who actually finally got it right. Then voluntarily submitted himself. To suffer. Divine wrath. On sin. You say, well, that's not a big deal. It is. And that's why he sweat drops of blood beforehand. He knew exactly what he was walking into. He knew why he came. And saints, he did it for us. He did it. For our sake, God made him, Christ, to be sin. Who knew no sin. He never sinned. It wasn't innate and he never committed sin. But he not only took our sin, he became sin. So that in him, we might become the very righteousness of God. That is the gospel. It is the good news. There is nothing remotely as good or similar to this anywhere. He did it all. He accomplished it. He did it for us. Now we'll, con- we'll continue this powerful passage in the weeks to come. It is worthy of our attention. Now I ask you, when you think of Jesus and his teachings and his ministry, are you taking into account all of Jesus or just the parts that you like? Because culture will do that for you. They will cherry pick that which they like. And it's a very small sliver of it. But it's the kind that it's that which is palatable to all of us. Let's look at all of what he has to say. Jesus came not to offer 10 steps to a better Colin. He came that Colin could be saved from my sin. Born again. The question is this. Have you 
will you enter through the narrow gate? Will you humble yourself and admit your own sin and believe that Jesus, the Son of God, actually died for you, was buried, and rose again? Will you heed the words of Jesus himself and the apostles as they proclaimed the message of Jesus Christ? Would you bow and prepare your hearts for prayer? Oh Lord, as we have considered such a powerful and a weighty passage before us this morning, we rejoice in the good news that's in it. We rejoice that the one who is the judge actually laid his life down for sinners. We thank you for the simplicity and the power of the gospel. Jesus did it all. We acknowledge the weight of this message. It is not pick the way that you like the most. It is recognize and acknowledge and believe that Jesus is who he said he is and did what he said he did. And believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, help us to be sober-minded in all that we do. Help us to rejoice. Knowing that our sins are forgiven. Help us to be people of strong conviction. Who know and align ourselves with your truth. Who indeed do love people well. Because we have been loved so well. Open our eyes to ways that we can minister to those around us. Let us never water down the truth and the potency of the gospel of Christ. Lord, today make us a blessing to those around us. Our sincere, our sincere prayer always is that anyone listening this morning or to the sound of my voice in the future, if they have not already, that they would see their desperate need for you and that they would put their faith and their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. Oh, Lord, we give you thanks and praise. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.